Have you ever wanted to just be used by God for those who are Christians in the room? Like you got a dream of, God, I've, I've got this big thing that I want to occur. And you ever prayed about it? You've ever asked God to show up? How many of you would love God to just show up in a big way this summer in your life? Like, okay, no, there were a little more, a little more. For a second there, I thought it was going to be three American Christians in the room <laughs> that were willing to see that. No, we're seeing a little more. Uh, but do you ever find sometimes that you just want God to just like show up and give you that burning bush moment? Yes. You know, like you've been waiting, God, I've been praying and I've been waiting and I just want you to show up. And I wonder this morning, I want to study why God shows up when he shows up, why he chooses people that he chooses. And I wonder if instead of saying, God, why didn't I get my burning bush moment yet? Instead, we might answer this question. What would your life look like if you developed the heart and character of God? That's a, that's a different way of looking at it, isn't it? We, we can beg God to show up, but if we don't have the heart and the humility of character to notice what he's doing in the world, we're going to miss what he's already doing in our life. I want to study the, the calling of David, the anointing of him as king, this shepherd boy to rule, and why in the world did God pick this, this young kid to lead his kingdom? If you're new with us, we're starting a brand new summer teaching series. Every summer we have a different summer teaching series. It's six weeks long this year, and it's simply called David. Now, anybody in here named David? I, I, yeah, okay, a few of you. I had a David say that this sermon series is about him. No, it's not. Uh, different David, but it'd probably be just as good as we studied your life, because in David's life, he is a man after God's own heart who is repeatedly going to make good choices and bad choices. You ever find like life is really hard to follow God in sometimes? You want that burning bush because you just want to see him be real and apparent in your life. And we're going to, over the next six weeks, unpack the life and the story of David, which let me give you a quick summary of it. You won't have to attend the series after I finish this. You should still come. It'll be way better. This week, we're looking at the calling and anointing of King David, but he's going to go on to be this great ruler. In fact, they're going to take the kingship away from Saul, this like big, rugged, good-looking guy, Scripture tells us, the one that everybody thought should be king, and they're going to give it to David, this unqualified person. And he's He's not going to take the kingship right away, but eventually he will. He'll be the one to show up when everybody's afraid of the giant Goliath and defeat Goliath. You know that story. But he'll go on to become king and a warrior king that really solidifies the borders of Israel and is going to be the one that for its generations, for hundreds of years, they're longing to get back to the days when David was king. He's going to make some bad choices too. He's going to commit adultery with Bathsheba. He's going to be used by God to set up the greatest time in the Israelite history to really set up the kingdom and everything he called him to do. His lineage would be the lineage that would lead to the birth of Jesus, all these grandiose things. But he's also the one, because of his own sin, that the kingdom will be split in two a generation later. Isn't that the reality of the human condition? What I want to share with you this morning through the story of David is begin the process of looking at how do we develop the heart of God? Because God saw something in David, and it was his character of heart. Our theme for 2023, 
We like to bring it up throughout the year is to develop the heart of God. And remember, that's the, the passion, the compassion for the things that God is passionate and compassionate about. And that's simply what we're doing for the next six weeks together. Are you ready to study God's word, church? Come on, turn to, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. You were exceptionally excited this morning. Uh, I don't know if the summer's getting into you. Joseph Newgarden is now the king of the Indy 500. Uh, I don't know what, but this morning we're going to look at the story of David, 1 Samuel chapter 16. But as you're turning there, let me read a verse from a few chapters earlier. See, Saul, or excuse me, Saul was king at that time, but Samuel, who the book is titled after, was a prophet of the Lord. And he's going to be told that Saul's no longer going to be king, and he's bummed about it. And it says this in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. Turn to 16, and we'll get there in a second. But now your kingdom will not endure. Talking about Saul. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Somebody who is passionate about the things that God is passionate about. And appointed him ruler of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. Over the next six weeks, we want to develop the heart of God in our life through the story and the life of David. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, it begins the story of when David will be selected as king by saying this in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, I'm going to move quickly, how long will you grieve over Saul? You're still whining about it. It's three chapters later. It's time to move on. Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. Now, the reason he fills the, the horn with oil is that's how you would anoint the king, and it represented, the oil represented the spirit of God was upon this person. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. This is David's dad. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, if you don't know the story of David, you might assume that David is the oldest son, the one that they thought would be king and would rule, and he's a great candidate. Not true at all. He's like the youngest. As we're going to see, he's literally the runt of the litter. In fact, his dad won't even bring him in to be looked at because he just knows there's no way that his son David's going to be king. Parents in the room, do you have a favorite? Could you, could you point to them? Point to the favorite in the room? No, we're not supposed to, right? But, but th this was the one that like the dad, this is like, no, it's not going to be him. Like no reason to bring him in. And look what happens in this passage, uh, verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab, who's the oldest son, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Even the prophet is like, Eliab's got it going on, clearly going to be the king, this older son who uh, is probably has good appearance because in verse 7 it says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. He's like, Eliab, good-looking dude, taller than some of the people on the stage this morning. May have been a first-century Israelite model. We're not sure. Clearly, he was going to be the next king, and yet he's like, nope, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks, what? On the heart. 
And then he's going to bring each of the other sons in, seven different sons. The next one, Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And he brings Shammai in. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Seven, presumably, some of them gifted, athletic, good-looking, great wit, huge social media following. The type of leader that you know in our culture today you would want to select. And he brings each of them through and he's like, nope, not them. Who God chooses and why he chooses, who he chooses, is different than why human beings choose things. In fact, what I want to talk uh, this morning about is very simple, how we could develop, like David, to be a person after God's own heart, someone that God not only chooses, but we have the humility to accept his pursuit of us. Will you pray with me? God, you know, we, uh, we're so busy in our lives, and in the summertime, God, it's beautiful outside. There may be sporting events going on. Lunch is happening. Brunch is happening. Oh, I don't know what all is occurring this morning, but we've set this time aside, and this whole morning would be worthless if we don't acknowledge the presence of your Holy Spirit in this room with us. God, I pray that uh, you might take any words away that, that, that aren't of you. The things that I might even say this morning that don't come from your word and aren't from you might fall on deaf ears, but whatever you have to say, Holy Spirit, you are in command of this room, of the homes and people attending online right now all over the world, and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move and help us to become people after your own heart. We love you, Jesus. We give you this time. Pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Isn't it interesting uh, why God selects the people that he selects? Because, uh, you know, I don't know why you select the people that you've selected in your life. Maybe it was your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your husband or your wife, or maybe the person that you voted for in an election. Let me tell you about one of the most important elections in human history. It was the 1998 student body president election of Union City Community High School. Come on now. Yeah, one person. Thank you. I was running for student body president. Now, you might say, why would anybody ever vote for you? That's a good question. But it was a small school. They didn't have many choices. In fact, the only other person running was one of my best friends to this day, Kyle Smith, who was one of the first, that's his real name, you can Google him, one of the first three people to ever, ever help us start this church. And Kyle and I ran against each other. Now, here was the thing. I was essentially the incumbent. I had been uh, the vice president of the student body the year before our junior year and going into our senior year. There was only 65 students in our graduating class. I had pretty good chance that I was gonna win uh, election for student body president. But here was the thing. My friend Kyle ran a fantastic campaign. <laughs> he had slogans, he had, and he was out shaking hands with everybody in the lunchroom. He was putting up posters everywhere. He was running advertisements. I don't know how much money he spent or what he did, but like he was winning votes. And after the votes had occurred for the three grades in high school, the freshmen, sophomores, and juniors moving into next year, I knew that I was in trouble. And so the only vote left was the eighth grade class. So we had to go to the eighth grade class and give a speech. 
and then you know, ask them to vote. And before the, the speech occurred, I saw Kyle going around, and he was doing the same thing he'd been doing, running a great campaign, using his slogan, t- shaking hands with everybody, talking to him. And I realized, man, I'm in trouble. He's going to convince all these people, but I'm going to lose. So here's what I did. You know, I had to outmaneuver him. I, I went, and I went to all of those guys he had been talking to, and I said, hey, I know you're not in high school yet. You'll, you'll learn a lot. And I know you're probably scared of what high school is going to be like. Well, let me give you a little inside scoop here. No high school student just votes for them, for somebody, because they tell you to vote for them. That'd look bad. You'd be a nerd. You don't want to do that. Don't vote for Kyle. Vote for me. And it totally worked. And I ended up winning the election with student body president, baby. Now, here, here's the thing. And Kyle and I, we laugh about it to this day. He's like, you only won because you went and told those guys that thing. I'm like, yeah, I know. Because that's, that's, how, that's how the world works, isn't it? You got to outmaneuver the person at work, do the sneaky thing so that you could win and get that promotion. For some of you who are going to attend sporting events today, you know, you got to bend the rules a little bit and figure out ways to maneuver things because it's really going to be the person who's willing to put it all on the line and figure out how to outsmart, how outwit and out, you know, do somebody by maneuvering them with their, with their intelligence or their good looks or their athleticism. That's how you get ahead in life. Then why doesn't God ever demonstrate that in the Bible one time? That is how the world works, no doubt about it, but that is not how God works. And the Bible tells us we're not of this world. We're not of this kingdom. We're serving a different king in a different kingdom. And our lives should look differently. And the way that he selects somebody is not based on who's the smartest, the best looking, or has the most going on, the biggest social media following, or the things that we select people over. What I want to show you this morning It's just a simple Bible study. Why David is picked from the pasture. Now, if if, this gets lost on us because none of you have tended sheep before. Tending sheep was like, being a shepherd was like the lowest rung of civility in that culture. No one wanted to do it. it. It was hot, first of all, and you were out with the animals all day long, often sleeping there at night in the fields, keeping watch over the flocks by night. Remember the Christmas story? Like, that's what shepherds did. And when Samuel shows up to anoint the next king, David, this young kid, is out tending the sheep rather than being brought in to be selected because why would anybody ever choose him? Why did David get picked from the pasture? If you're taking notes, point number one is this, why David is picked from the pasture. Number one, God chooses the unlikely. God chooses the unlikely. If you ever like, God, choose me. I want to do this great thing. Well, then understand, it doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter the things that you've done or accomplished in your past. What matters is what is happening in your life. And as we'll see here in a moment, your character. God chooses the unlikely. Look at uh, verses 11 and 12 here. He's going to pass over all seven sons. And then he's going to be like, hey, wait a second. This can't be all, because God said no to all of them. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, (laughs) but behold, he is keeping the sheep. Not bringing him in, he's the youngest one. Why would we even concern ourselves with him? And literally, the word youngest here in this passage is the Hebrew word hakatan. 
Uh, try and say that 10 times fast. Hakatan. And it does mean youngest, but it's really more of a blend of young and unimportant. <laughs> don't bother with him. No, kind of like Cinderella. Like, don't, why, you don't need to concern yourself with him. Why would anybody ever want to choose him? The most unlikely candidate. Why even bother bringing him in? It goes on and it says, and Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. Verse 12, and he, said, he sent and brought him in. Now, check this out. Now he was ruddy. What in the world does that mean? And had beautiful eyes. Fellas, when was the last time you ever told a dude, man, you just, you have beautiful eyes. I just, I wanted you to know that. Right? <laughs> we don't do that. Yet the author recounts that he had beautiful eyes. Doesn't talk about how tall he was or how strong he was, what a great warrior he must be, how smart his intellect was, how influential he was in the community. He simply said he looked ruddy and he had beautiful eyes. Let's dissect that for a moment. So this young, unimportant one that they didn't even bring in, because why would you bother? When they finally bring him in, ruddy, there are kind of two different understandings of this in the Hebrew. Many of these words are not used very often in Hebrew, so they're debated. It's not like, you know, uh, cultures and languages that would come later. There were a lot of different meanings. And so one translation that the ruddy here in this passage, uh, most think it's probably more uh, like runt, like the runt of the litter. In other words, in fact, one says it kind of, it might mean that he was somebody that, uh, I'm not saying this, but the translation was that he had freckles and he had red hair and he was somebody that wasn't thought after. Why they would mention those attributes, I have no idea, but he was ruddy of look and it wasn't somebody that they were going to select. I like this one a little bit better though. It's the thought that they're not talking about his physical attributes, but what being in the pasture made him look like, that he was overly tanned, ruddy in look, that he was essentially dirty and disheveled because he had been out living with the animals. Again, he's the young, unimportant one who was dirty and out working with animals. Why would you ever pick him? Because God chooses the unlikely. In fact, you get to that next part, the beautiful eyes, which is just a strange statement to say. But he noted that Eliab, the oldest, was tall and of great stature, essentially. Because if you want a king in that culture, you want somebody who's going to lead them out into battle. Now, here's the thing. David will become the greatest warrior king in Israelite history. He will defeat Goliath. He will solidify their borders and boundaries. He will get rid of the Philistines and defeat them time and time again. He'll do all these great works of battle. And yet when they looked at him, when they're going to anoint him as king, they were like, they don't say he was a strong, you know, strapping young man who was tall in stature. They say he had beautiful eyes. Essentially, he was this cute little disheveled boy. How many of you want to go into battle with a cute little disheveled boy? Wouldn't you be like, oh, God, what in the world are you doing? When I think of a great warrior, this is, maybe this is my area. I don't know who you think about as a great warrior. I think about William Wallace. Anybody? Yeah, come on now. And, you know, we often think William Wallace looked like Mel Gibson. He didn't. 
Scholars actually believe there's a statue of him in Scotland still today, and it's, you can notice the size and stature of William Wallace. It's thought that he was six foot six or six foot seven. And we don't have a photograph, obviously, but a lot of that is based on they actually have his sword, which was five foot six inches long. It was a massive sword. That he was this big, strong warrior that nobody could stand up to. And yet God didn't choose the William Wallace. That was Saul. He tried that. And he showed the people that's not what he's after. He's after the heart and the character. And so he chooses the shepherd boy, this little disheveled kid to lead them as king. In verse 12b through 13a, and the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of all oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. He, he puts the oil on him, he prays over him, he anoints him, and he's going to be the, the king eventually. But right now, the spirit is upon him, and Saul is still going to try and keep him from becoming king. And years later, he will eventually become king. But what we'll look at in a moment, do you know what David went back to doing right after this? He went back to tending the sheep. And we'll talk about why he did that. But what I want to share throughout the entirety of Scripture is God over and over again chooses the humble of heart. It was Abel's humble offering over Cain's egotistical, prosperous offering that he saw and was pleased with. He chooses Leah, who was plain in sight over the beautiful Rachel to build his kingdom. He, time and time again, he's going to take the wimpier younger Jacob and choose him over the stronger Esau. He chooses unlikely people to demonstrate his power and his authority when they have the humility of heart to demonstrate that to the world. But here's the, here's the truth. That's not how the world works. That's not how we do things, is it? We look for the strongest, the most athletic, the most beautiful, the smartest, the most talented. We want to build our resumes so that other people will think good things about us of how much we've achieved. And as someone who was taught as a young age, I told you as student body president, right? To achieve, I want to tell you that God is not interested in building our resumes. He's interested in building our eulogies. To lead a life. And I don't know about you, the older I get, the more I want to have a great eulogy. If you don't know what that is, that's what people say about you when you die at your funeral. I want to have a great eulogy, a better eulogy than I have a resume. And I've got a ways to go, but that's the work God is doing in my life, and I think he wants to do in all of us as followers of Jesus. Secular human history doesn't choose the Jacobs and the Leahs and the Davids. They choose the Sauls of the world. God sees it differently. Number two, if you're taking notes, why did he pick David out of the pasture? God is most interested in our character. <laughs> How many of you, when you were like flipping through uh, your social media feed on Instagram, single people in a room, and you were looking, and you were on that dating site deciding which way you're going to swipe, you're moving through all those things. How many of you were like, I'm first and foremost looking for character qualities here on social media in this dating profile, right? Like our world doesn't operate that way. God is most interested in your character and my character and our character. Look at uh, verse, if you go back to verse seven, remember why he chose David in the first place. It said in verse seven, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him, a sign that God loves short people. 
First of all, if you're taking notes, write that down. Because I have rejected him for his height. No, he's rejected him because his heart isn't in the right place. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God is most interested in our character, where our heart, our passion lies. I find that most people, we're looking for identity, security, happiness in life, just some simple traits that we're pursuing. And we'll pursue it in all kinds of things, in romantic relationships, in our friends' circles. We'll, we'll pursue it in uh, the way that we live at work, that we find our identity and security in our job or our financial portfolio. We'll, we'll, we'll pursue things because we don't find the happiness we're looking for. We avoid and escape life to drugs or to alcohol. We avoid God in ways that we know he's speaking to us, but something seems simpler and easier, and we just want any moment of fleeting happiness because this life is meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind, as Ecclesiastes said, so why even bother? Do you know where God shows us again and again in Scripture where we are to find identity, security, and happiness? In him. That's where we're going to find it for eternity. He desires your heart to be a, a man or a woman after God's own heart because he wants you to find your identity, security, and your happiness in him. And you can find most of our temptations, most of our sin is often chasing after finding those three things in other places. I, I was even reminded of the very first sin when you have Adam in the Garden of Eden, right? He chooses that, that fruit largely because he's looking for identity, security, and happiness in some other place. Temptation often looks like that. And what I want to challenge you this morning is, remember that as a follower of Jesus, God is most interested in your character. We even need to start doing that to leaders like me, right? We, we can kind of take people who God has put in uh, positions of influence spiritually and we can say that this person, you know, is perfect. And we look at these pastors and leaders online and we're not looking at the things that God is looking at. God is not looking for your human influence on social media or your great talents and abilities. He is looking for a character, our humbleness of heart. And I wonder why, even in the church sometimes, we don't celebrate those who humbly serve in this seemingly insignificant way, as I believe, Jesus said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, that he came to be a servant for all, to lay his life as a, down as a ransom for many, that he calls us with humility of heart to lay our life down as sacrifice for other people. That's why in Proverbs 14, 12, it kind of highlights this dichotomy that is occurring even in our culture today where we celebrate the influential people and we forget that God is after our character. There is a way that seems right to a man. You've heard a song about this before. There is a way that seems, Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, right? That seems like that's the way that we should live. You should try and maneuver and get that job promotion and outsmart people. And then there's a way that God asks us to live. But the way that man wants to live or humans want to live, it ends, but its end is the way to death. It's a way of spiritually killing our souls over time. Think about it this way. If you're going to select people the way that God selects people, then your boyfriend or your girlfriend that you're pursuing, the primary attribute you're looking for is the character of God. 
that chase after the heart of God. And you'll find plenty of people who've been married for like 30 some years who will tell you a lot changes over time, including our physical bodies. Spouses still as beautiful as they ever were. Amen. Amen. But we can also say that the greatest blessing over any relationship, if it's a marriage, it's a friendship, the greatest blessing over time are people who actually care and love us the way that God cares and loves us all the time. That's the great blessing. And yet we evaluate for all the wrong reasons. We hire people. We look up to leaders and even pastors because of their gift mix or their, their abilities. And God says, no, 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 no. I don't care about Ilya. Move on. I'm looking for the Davids who are willing to tend the sheep when everybody else is rushing in to be king. We need more Davids in our culture that are willing to pasture the sheep to lay down our life. Yet what most of us look for and what we're told time and time again, the way you lead a great life, a beautiful life, is to find your unique qualities and set yourself apart from people in your uniqueness. And that when you discover that, then you can finally become this great person. Now look, I believe there's nothing wrong with uniqueness and originality. As a creator myself, I love that stuff. But I want to tell you that is not the beautiful life that God intends for you. It's just to be the most unique person in the world. We tell people, find your identity, security, and happiness by being this unique person. Self-realization, great thing to understand what you're good at and what you're not good at. We all appreciate when people do that, right? But what I want to share with you this morning is God doesn't go a great life. It's just realizing how unique and great you are. The Christian philosopher John Lennox, this is his analogy, not mine. Don't be mad at me, but I thought it was really drives the point home. He says, uniqueness isn't what leads to a beautiful life. Because being unique in and of itself doesn't make something great. He says he used the analogy of a dog that goes to the restroom. He says every time the dog goes to the restroom, what comes out is entirely unique. (laughs) Uniqueness doesn't equal beauty every time, does it? And neither does it in our lives. If you want to live a beautiful life for God, uniqueness is fine and great, but in and of itself is not what God is after. He is after your character. He is after your heart to become someone like him. The third and final point is this. So you say, well, I want more character. I want to become somebody who has the character that God desires for me. How do I develop that in my life? Number three, character is made in the pasture. He was tending the sheep. The job others didn't want to do. In fact, if you go down to verse 19 in 1 Samuel 16, so Samuel leaves and then he comes back sometime later and it says, therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David who is with the sheep. Now, if you had just been an anointed king, what would you do? I might, this is me, I might start going and walking around town a little bit, you know, looking around. Hey, did you hear what happened? You hear what happened? I'd be like, hey, by the way, show me the palace. Where's that at? I'm ready to move in. Come on. Uh, ready to have all this happen. Bring me some grapes. I've been waiting on this moment. And what does David do when he instantly becomes anointed king? He's not officially king, but he's been anointed king by the prophet of God. He goes back and tends the sheep. Wouldn't you be wondering, now, wait a second. God, you may be king. This goes on for a while. You may be king, and I'm back here tending the sheep again. What are you doing, God? Where are you at? I thought you showed up this great moment, and now what's happening? I find many of us think 
that God is only in the big, exciting moments in our life. And the small, mundane moments are when God must be far from us. And yet this passage demonstrates the exact opposite. It says the Spirit of the Lord never left him. Chuck Swindoll says this about this season of David's life. Three words describing David's time in the pasture. These are the words. I don't know about you. I don't like any of these words. Obscurity, monotony, and reality. That David was in obscurity. People didn't know who he was, even though he'd been anointed king. He was serving in the most monotonous way possible, tending the sheep. His reality every day was waking up to the filth of being this disheveled young man who has been anointed king and yet is still in the lowliest of jobs. I think God develops our character most in the moments where we're willing to serve him in the mundane, obscure, monotonous ways that may be your reality today. Some of you young uh, dads or moms in the room, you're like, I'd love to you know, really serve God this summer and see God do this big work in my life like we talked about earlier. I'd love, but the truth is like, I'm just trying to survive. My reality is a monotonous one where I wake up, I go to work or I I work at home and I, I, I tend the kids, I change dirty diapers, I feed them, they make a mess, I help pick it up, they make another mess, I help pick it up, I feed them again, I change another diaper, I go to bed, they wake me up, I change more diapers, right? Like, This is the reality. Sometimes the bravest way to serve God is to begin in the small things in your life. That where God develops characters in the pasture, in the monotonous, obscure places of our reality that other people don't appreciate, that those that aren't Christian, that don't have God in their life, would never say that's going to make this a way to become a great, influential person. At your workplace, doing the things that other people aren't willing to do, to just do the monotonous stuff out of faithfulness, not because you're going to be rewarded or outmaneuver somebody, but because it's the right thing to do to honor the Lord. In the way that you go about your your business as a businesswoman or a businessman to lead with the character of God first and foremost. For the students in the room, middle school, high school, college age, grad students, that some of the simplest ways to demonstrate that God is at work in your life is in the small ways just to honor him, to do the little things on a daily basis. They're going to grow your character because God has you in the pasture to grow your character so that you could be used by him. We all want, God, give me the burning bush. Give me this great moment. Use me in powerful ways. I want to see the sun stand still in my life like Joshua did. But the truth was, Joshua didn't see the sun stand still till chapter 10. He had all kinds of years of faithfully following God, being one of only two people who were sent into the giants, into the promised land. The other 10 leaders were scared to death of the giants, and only Joshua and Caleb said, I don't care. I got God on my side. Let's go ahead. It's faithfulness over time leads to impact. And it starts with the obscure, monotonous, small ways that I find most of us American Christians are not excited to serve God in. If you begin there, guys, I'm telling you, people will notice a difference in your life. They will say something is different about this person. Why? David goes back to tend the sheep. Psalm 78, 72 says this about David when he was a shepherd. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart. The small, monotonous jobs. He did with integrity of heart, with skillful hands, he led them. 
J.D. Greer says it this way, faithfulness in the small produces power in the big. If you want to be used by God to do big things, begin with being faithful in the small things. I can't tell you, over almost 12 years of doing this with Mercy Road Church, you all a lot don't see the faithful people behind the scenes that do the small things that make impact. You see people like me up here, right? And you think, oh, God really uses that person. I want to tell you right now, there are spiritual giants who are way, way greater in the kingdom of God in my eyes who you will never see up here on stage willing to serve God in the smallest ways because they know it leads to the greatest impact. Jesus said, the last shall be first, the first shall be last. The way we live is to lay our life down as a ransom for many. A.W. Tozer said this too, because some of you, you're like, yeah, but I come from a broken past. I've got, I've got hurt and pain and I've avoided God. Some of the decisions were my doing. Some of the things were done to me that were out of my control. Whatever it is, A.W. Tozer says, when God wants to use someone greatly, he first hurts them very deeply. I know you guys know my story, so I'm not gonna go into it, but that was the truth of losing a child while planting a church. God grew my faith in ways I never thought possible. I never want to do it again. He picked David from the pasture because he was willing to tend the sheep first without any glory. I think of the people in our church, my friend David, who he thought the sermon series was about him, but it's not. And he, he was atheist, well, agnostic for years and um, came to faith later in life. And I've told this story before, but what I think people often miss is he was somebody willing for three plus years to attend church services, have one-on-one conversations over and over again for years to get his spiritual questions answered. It was that type of faithfulness in the small things, I believe, that eventually helped him discover that faith in God. I think of a, a, a single mom who, who surrendered her life to Christ at the College Avenue building, and, and, and all of a sudden, she was faithful. She didn't have much. She was, couldn't get by, but she started serving other people. And as she served other people, God started providing for her. It's those small things that lead to the great impact. I think of the marriages. We've had people who literally got divorced and were done. It was over because of their own lack of character on one person's part. And yet God restored them. And it was their humility and surrender to the Lord that redeemed them and brought reconciliation. And over a lot of time, they ended up getting remarried, have a child together. I want to tell you, no matter where you've been or what you've done, God's not done for you with you. He chooses the unlikely. He wants to develop your character and the passion. If you let with the humility of heart that David has, you can actually be used by God to do great things today. Sleeping giants of the faith is what we'll talk about in the room with us right now. And what you don't need is more talent and ability. You don't need to have everything figured out. What you need is humility of heart to have the character of God to say, I'll do whatever you ask. That's it. That's it. Yeah, that's the hardest thing, isn't it? I don't think it's a mistake that right before this service, I talked to two people in the lobby. One of them, she surrendered her life to Christ and got rebaptized, rededicated her life to Christ at her second birthday bash, and she's been serving the homeless downtown for at least eight years. It's been incredible, the impact that she's made with her life. And then I talked to a missionary couple over in Asia 
who I just met this morning, somebody willing to sacrifice everything to go overseas. They're only here for a couple of months saying, hey, how can we make an impact with the time that we got? That type of faithful obedience is what we need more in Christianity and less celebrities, less people to pat on the back and say they're a great person instead say God's a great person. He wants a relationship with you and it takes the humility and humbleness of heart to see him demonstrated in your life. And my simple question is this, are you willing to do that? For the Christians, some of you need to surrender and rededicate your life because you have been coasting. And the heart of God is not as far from you, not because you don't know God, but because you're not willing to just have the humility to say, God, I'll just do whatever you ask. And some of you in the room, you think because of your past, God couldn't use you. I want to tell you today, you can be used. And in fact, I believe some of you are going to find faith this morning, surrender your life to Jesus, be baptized later this summer, and go on to make a huge impact with your life, way bigger than anybody you'll see up here this morning, to make a huge impact with your life. I always say the greatest impact in the New Testament wasn't Paul, it was Ananias, because Ananias got to lead Paul to faith. I wonder if there's a Paul in the room right now. I want to be Ananias this morning, that there are some people in the room that you just need to surrender. Enough is enough. Stop chasing after your identity and security and happiness and all these other things and say, I'm going to find it in you alone, Jesus. Will you pray with me? God, I pray whether it's to rededicate their life or to give their life for the very first time. I know there are people in this room right now, many of us, God, many of us who, who just need you, who we need you. We've been avoiding you for too long. And we're going to stop it. We're going to surrender everything. If that's you here in the room, on the count of three, I'm just going to ask, ask you to raise your hand nice and high. I think there might be somebody here right now that God is calling to do something that we can't even imagine. And you've been around Christianity for so long, but you've never surrendered everything. I want to give you the opportunity on the count of three to simply raise your hand with every eye closed. Raise your hand on the count of three that you want to surrender your life to Jesus. One, Jesus loves you. Two, he's not done with your life. And three, he welcomes you into his loving family. I see the couple of people over there to my right. I see the couple of people over here as well. I see the young man over there. Talk to your mom, please, this morning. I see you right over there as well. The two people in the back. And then more hands coming up. Praise God. I just want to tell you that, okay, you can put those down. God, we we don't fake anything here. You saw those people raise their hand that they want to believe a fully surrendered life to you. So now I pray that you honor that, God, the humility, the step of faith right there. So if that's you in the room, pray this silently as I pray out loud. God, I confess that I need you. I surrender everything in my life to you as Lord. I do this beautiful thing. I repent of any of my sin in my life. Thank you for forgiveness and grace. And now I give you everything in my life it's fully yours. I will be obedient to whatever you ask me to do. You've seen God, those praying that right now. Honor it. Help them to take next steps of faith. We love you, Jesus. We give you this morning. We pray this in your name and all God's family said, amen.